you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Now, this morning, you see I brought a bag up here with me. Uh, this week was actually kind of a fun week. We started thinking, you all know I live on a farm. The business family lives out on a, on a small farm out uh, close to Folsom. And we started thinking about what are we going to plant in our garden this year, okay? And so we started thinking about what kind of flowers Sarah likes to, to choose different kinds of flowers. So we ordered flower seed. We started thinking about vegetables. Um, but then something else pretty exciting happened that's never happened to me in my life, okay? Uh, somebody gave me two citrus fruit trees to plant. I've never had that in my life. I've never lived anywhere warm enough to grow citrus trees, okay? Uh, but I'm excited. So he tells me one of them is an orange tree and one of them is a grapefruit tree. So I brought with me just a little bit of fruit here. So there's a grapefruit. That's what we're hoping to get in the next couple of years. And this is actually not an orange. It's a satsuma. We actually have a couple of satsuma trees on the farm that were there when we got there. But what's cool is when you put a tree in the ground or you put a seed in the ground... You know that whatever kind of seed you plant is the kind of fruit you're going to get. Uh, so if you plant a grapefruit tree, hopefully you'll get lots of big, healthy, juicy grapefruits. If you have a satsuma tree, hopefully you're going to get a lot of satsumas. If you plant uh, a vegetable like a tomato, you hope you're going to get a lot of tomatoes. Uh, and the same thing, I think, is what we're going to see here in our passage today. When we look at what Jesus has to say, really in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but especially in our passage today, is that... If you have planted yourself in Christ, if you have been rooted in Christ through faith, then you are going to produce a certain kind of fruit because that's the kind of person you now are. And so Jesus says, if you're my follower, here's the kind of fruit you are going to produce going forward. And so I want us to look at this as we uh, get into our text today. Uh, you reap what you sow. And I think we're going to see a great example of if you know Jesus, this is the kind of fruit you're going to produce. If you sow repentance and faith in Christ, you will bear fruit, eternal fruit of the kind that we're going to talk about. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see here it says part one. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for quite a while because as we're going to see, this is one of those unique passages of Scripture where Jesus just lays out for us what it means to follow him. And so we don't want to go over it too fast. Today we're going to look at the intro portion, uh, verses 1 through 12, which is sometimes called the Beatitudes. We're going to come back to that. Uh, but if you think about this, this um, where does the Sermon on the Mount occur in Matthew? We talked about how Jesus was born, how he was uh, baptized, how he called his disciples, how he preached the message of repentance. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now we arrive in chapter 5. He has these followers who are with him, and he says, now sit down. I'm going to tell you what it looks like to be a part of my kingdom. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But before we do that, I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of uh, near Capernaum. This is where traditionally the church believes that Jesus actually sat and gave the Sermon on the Mount. You can kind of see it's rolling hills, and it looks down over the Sea of Galilee. And so you can just imagine Jesus sitting down with his disciples and saying, sit on the ground in front of me, and then he teaches them uh, from the top of the hill. And so that's what I want to invite you this morning. As you hear these words, just sit there and imagine that you're there uh, with Jesus teaching you as we read them, and then we'll talk about what he has to say. So the Sermon on the Mount, before we read these verses, uh, one other couple, a couple other comments about it. Jesus actually gives five pretty major sermons in the book of Matthew, five discourses. And this is the first one. This is also one of the most important ones. 
You know, a lot of people quote this one. In fact, we would say this is this is probably the grand proclamation of what God's kingdom is. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, then he says, here's what the kingdom is going to look like. And so that's what happens in these chapters. Um, but the question is, and we're going to have to answer this today, is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, is this a current reality? Or is it something that's going to happen in the future, a dream of how we hope it will be in the future? And, you know, uh, is it a standard? You know, some people would say when they look at these Beatitudes, for example, today, they'll say Jesus lays it out there and it's a standard that we could never achieve. And so it points us to him. Other people would say, again, it's only possible someday in the future when Jesus comes back, then these things will be true. Other people say, no, we're called to live this out on earth and we're called to create a utopia on earth where all these things are happening perfectly. In fact, uh, you'll hear a lot of even non-Christians quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, a great Indian leader in the country of India, actually said it's one of the best guides for living he had ever seen. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this famous quote. He said that if our country would just live out the ideals of the Sermon on the, on the Mount, I can think of few problems that would not be fixed entirely. Um, and the question is, should the church be doing that or should the government be doing that, right? <laughs> you can debate that all day long. But he recognized the value of this. But here's another quote. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says this, humanly speaking, it's a, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. But Jesus knows only one possibility. Simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing it and obeying it. And that is really the only way to hear his words. He does not mean it for us to discuss it as an ideal. He means for us to get on with it. And so this morning as we think about it, this is actually the call that Jesus places on our life. Um, when we talk about this current reality or future dream, one thing you're going to have to get used to in the next month or two is this idea of already and not yet. Jesus says the kingdom has already come, but it's not yet complete. So in the meantime, Live like you're in the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. Even though we recognize these things will not happen completely until Jesus returns. And so we are already in the kingdom, although the kingdom is not yet fulfilled. And so that's what it means to follow Christ. That's the calling for our church. That's the calling for individual believers to to follow the things we're going to talk about today. Uh, and it's our calling to, to move forward. Oswald Chambers says this, The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life that we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. And so that's what we want, is for the Holy Spirit to have his way with us. If you know Jesus, what we're going to talk about this morning is just a great snapshot, a great portrait of what a Christian is called to look like. So we're going to do that. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, uh, talks to us about this kingdom character. So follow along in your Bibles if you have one, or you can follow on the screen as I read these first 12 verses from Matthew chapter 5. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God to us today. This morning we're going to talk about these things. They're called in your Bible, it probably says the Beatitudes. And you might say, well, what does that mean? I heard a speaker one time say, it's the attitudes you're supposed to be, the Beatitudes. And we can call them that. In fact, actually, if you'll look in your bulletin, you'll see we're going to give a different point today that you're to, called to be a certain way in each one of these. But that's actually not what the word beatitude means. It actually comes from a Latin word that means uh, happy or blessed. Um, and so it's this idea of, of uh, behaviors and attitudes that are just blessed behaviors. And so there are nine of them here in our scripture text today. Uh, and we want to look at them. What you'll notice, though, is that each one of those made a statement, didn't it? It said, blessed is this person because whatever. So it's a statement of what is true in the life of a believer. But. It's also a promise. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It doesn't say, for they might see God. It says, they shall see God. And so it's not only a statement, it's also a promise. You know, when we talk about this idea of being blessed, blessed are those. Before we jump into each one of these blessing statements, what does it mean to be blessed? You hear that statement a lot, right? Hey, be blessed or blessings on you. Or uh, you might even see this from time to time on Instagram or Twitter. Hashtag blessed or hashtag so blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Do we even understand what that word means? And I think what we see here is this idea of being blessed Blessed is is not the same as just being happy. Okay, some of your translations might actually translate it as happy as the person who does this. Happiness is certainly part of what being blessed means, but that's not all. Happiness is more of an emotion. This is from Alan Ross, a commentator. He says this, Blessed is a term, an exclamation of the inner joy and peace that comes with being right with God. Happiness may indeed be a part of it, but it is a happiness that transcends what happens in the world around us. It's a happiness or a joy that comes to the soul Because you are favored by God. That is why it can call for rejoicing, even under intense persecution. This idea of being blessed is not just dependent on what's happening to you. Blessing is is dependent on God's favor and the fact that he is giving you all you need for life and godliness. So that's what we want to talk about this morning as we look at these kingdom character qualities. And so as we look at these... I think you ask yourself, is this the kind of fruit that's being produced in my life right now? Or how can God produce this fruit in my life? And so that's what our goal is for today. So let's look at the first one. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, it says this. We're going to kind of go down each one and we want to draw some applications and some uh, helpful thoughts from each one of these statements. Um, And then uh, hopefully by the end we will see how it is that God wants to produce this fruit in our lives. So Matthew 5 3 again says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think what we're called to do in this verse and in this beatitude is to be 
humble. All right, so be humble is our takeaway from this one. You know, a lot of people will say that when Jesus describes the kingdom here in Matthew chapter 5, really all the way through the book of Matthew, they'll, they'll make a note that he is drawing heavily from descriptions in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus doesn't show up on the scene and say, hey, here's something new you've never heard about before. He says, no, this kingdom, the kingdom of God that I'm bringing in as the king, is something that God promised a long, long time ago. And so especially with these Beatitudes, there's a strong link to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. So we may be flipping back and forth there a little bit. There's also a strong link uh, to uh, Psalm 37. There's a lot of statements in Psalm 37 that say, blessed are the, uh, there's, I think blessed are the meek is almost quoted word for word in Psalm 37. So there's a big connection between what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 and what God has been saying all along through the Old Testament. That the kingdom of God, the citizens of my kingdom, the people who are in my family are going to look like this and believe like this and follow me like this. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 61 uh, says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus actually quotes those verses in the Gospel of Luke and says, those verses were written about me. In other words, he says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. So you might say, okay, well, we know what poor people look like. We need to talk about that word poor, don't we? We all know what poor people look like. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough clothes sometimes. They may not have a place to live. So we could easily just say, oh, Jesus came to help Poor people, people who don't have possessions, people who don't have money, maybe people who don't have food. But what Jesus is talking about here is not just physical poverty, is it? Look at what your verse says there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, they're lacking something. This idea of being poor means you're lacking resources, you're lacking money, you're lacking food. But when Jesus says you're poor in spirit... That means that you're missing something else. You realize that you have nothing you can contribute to save yourself. Okay. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he says, those who realize that they're poor in and of themselves, that they could never rescue themselves, that they're spiritually poor, really without hope, apart from Jesus, those are the people who will be blessed. And that's really the first step to repentance and salvation, isn't it? To realize that you can't earn this. Because you see where poor people may be oppressed. They have little power. They have few possessions. And they have even less hope. Those who are poor in spirit are the same way. They realize they have nothing to contribute to receiving the kingdom of heaven. So brothers and sisters, that's the first step in these beatitudes. Is to realize who you are. You are poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit. Spiritually destitute. There's nothing I can offer to God that says, God, look at how great I am. Look how wealthy I am. Don't you want me to be around you? Look how great I am. No, I can't say that. Because scripture tells us, apart from God, we are completely poor. Sinners, destitute, helpless, and hopeless without God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
I think we have to look at this verse and say a few things. First of all is to just be humble. That's the attitude of humility. Recognizing that I am not something great that God wants because I'm so amazing. Recognize that apart from him, I have no hope. That's the beginning point of following Jesus. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that I have nothing like that God would want. So what do we, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? I think the first thing is repentance, okay? Uh, remember Jesus just a couple of verses earlier had said, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he's saying, recognize that you're sinful. Turn away from that and turn to me. So that's, this lifestyle of repentance is really what we're talking about. But what does that look like? I, what I would also say is this. If you have never realized that uh, actually I am poor in spirit, maybe you thought, well, no, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm at least good enough that God might favor me enough to get me into heaven. Recognize these verses, this verse. It is only those who are poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of heaven or who have inherited the kingdom of heaven. A couple more comments here about application. First of all, recognize that you need Jesus. You're spiritually poor without him. Second, when it comes to just this attitude of humility as a follower of Christ, being humble, being poor in spirit, avoid the comparison game, okay? Right? So a lot of times it's easy for us to look around at the people around us, either in our family or our community or even in our church, and say, well, at least I'm a little better than they are. You know, I'm further down the road than they are. God says if you're following him, if you're a citizen of his kingdom, There's no room for that kind of comparison or that kind of pride. We are all called to be poor in spirit, recognizing that apart from God, we are spiritually poverty-stricken, without hope. So avoid that comparison game. Another thing to realize when we look at this idea of being poor in spirit and being humble, remember, this is important for you and important for anyone around you, that all are welcome to come to Jesus. They don't have to clean themselves up before they come to him. All they need to realize is that they are desperate and can't do it without him. So all are welcome. This is good news for physically poor people, right? God doesn't favor rich people and say, hey, Christianity is just for the wealthy or just for the successful or just for the ones who have their family all together. He says, faith in Christ will save the poorest soul, the most miserable soul, and the most Rich, so it's good news for all people, rich or poor, old or young. All are welcome. It's not just the rich or the pretty or the successful. But remember this, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be poor in spirit. Recognize that God's your only hope. You have nothing, no riches of your own that you can offer. No good deeds, nothing. That's the beginning point of following Jesus. We are called to be poor in spirit. To be humble. That brings us to the second uh, point here. Matthew 5, 4 says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so uh, I put down here, be sorrowful. Be sorrowful. And you might think, what? Are Christians supposed to walk around being sad all the time? Is that what this means? Blessed are those who mourn? Are we just supposed to be in mourning all the time? Well, again, if you read all of Scripture, you realize that's not what God calls us to. In fact, A lot of times where scripture talks about mourning, it says that God alone can turn our mourning into dancing. He can transform the darkest situation into into rejoicing. How does that happen? 
Let's think about that word mourning or sorrow for a minute. When do you mourn? Well, most commonly, it's going to be after you lose a loved one, right? If anyone's experienced that, you know that you're in mourning after one of your loved ones dies. In fact, uh, years ago, uh, in earlier days, uh, people would go into a season of mourning. Usually 12 months, they would wear black for a full 12 months so that people actually knew that they were in mourning. We don't do it quite that way these days. Uh, but when you lose somebody, especially somebody you love, you go into the season of mourning, a season of sorrow. Or maybe you're mourning because you lost a friend, lost a job. It's usually you're, you're sorrowful because something was lost or something was taken away. But what Jesus is talking about here, I think this actually ties very closely to the first beatitude. Is first and foremost, he says, mourn because of your sins. In the context of this passage, is Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, those who are sorrowful because they've sinned and realize that they actually need help. He's not just talking about that. He is talking about mourning for life circumstances which are all caused by sin, the sinful world we live in. Not that when somebody dies, it's because they sin. That's not what I'm saying. But all death, all pain, all suffering ultimately is caused by sin because we live in a sinful, broken world. And so when we mourn those things, and when we mourn our own sinfulness, God says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. you know if you've mourned over your sin, if you understand what sin does to you, you're sorry for it, you understand that sin destroys you, separates you from God, you're sorrowful about that, know that God says, I have come to bring you comfort through Jesus Christ. In fact, on these first two Beatitudes, I think one of the best ways to remember both of these, being poor in spirit and mourning over your sin, uh, is when we celebrate communion. What a beautiful picture That number one, we're poor in spirit. None of us deserve to share communion with Christ. None of us deserve to be at peace with him. And it's also a chance for us to confess and grieve over whatever sins we may have committed, knowing that God has forgiven them through Jesus Christ. So when we celebrate communion, it's a great way to celebrate these two Beatitudes. If you have mourned over your sin, even if you're mourning over circumstances that have been caused either directly or indirectly by sin, Know that God promises you will be comforted. Both during these days, but ultimately when the kingdom that is not yet here comes, we know that you will be comforted. Revelation 21 verse 4, which again quotes from Isaiah 25 verse 8, says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You shall be comforted because Jesus came as the King. Do you know Him? Have you experienced that comfort? The third beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 5, it says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Psalm 37, 11 says this, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So it's almost a direct quote from, uh, from Psalm 37. But what are we talking about when we look at this word meekness? It's not a word you've probably used in the last week, is it? Talking about somebody being so meek, uh, probably not a word you've used in the last year. Maybe, maybe you've never used the word meek in conversation. 
And yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we talk about inheriting the earth, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. So again, Jesus says, this inheritance belongs to those who are meek. Well, what does it mean to be meek? You may have heard this before. People will say, meekness is not weakness, okay? Meekness is not weakness. So it doesn't mean you're weak. God doesn't say you just have to be a a puny little uh, person that gets trodden over by everyone like a doormat. That's not what we're talking about here. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. And so that's why we say we are called here in this one to be self-controlled. God says you may be the strongest person in the room. You might be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to let everybody know that. (laughs) Uh, So keep your strength under control. Use it to accomplish his kingdom work. Walk by the spirit. So when we say self-controlled, we're really saying spirit-controlled. What's an example of what meekness looks like? Okay, my daughters, this is not a picture of my daughters. This is just a picture that I found online. A couple of my daughters take horse riding lessons. And it is amazing to me uh, when you see at the same place where they take lessons, there's like a little girl that's probably five years old, about the size of these kids in the picture, up on top of a gigantic horse. Now, who's more powerful, the horse or the little kid? Obviously the horse. The horse weighs over 1,000 pounds. The kid weighs maybe 50 pounds. So who's more powerful? The horse. The only reason that whole situation works is because that horse has its strength under control. And that horse is using its strength uh, to do the things it's called to do and asked to do. God says we're supposed to be like that. You may have the greatest strength. You may have great understanding, great wisdom. um, But God says use that strength, again, in a humble way, in a meek way, to advance my kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you think about this, when we live in a world where who's in charge? If you look around in politics, it usually looks like it's the dictators, the the tyrannical leaders, tyrants, uh, the schemers. All those people look like they're in charge. But who does God say will inherit the earth? It's not them. It's those who are meek, those who follow him, that regardless of how much strength they have, they're willing to follow him. Those who are self-controlled or, like I said, spirit-controlled. Think about the fruit of the spirit. This is from Galatians 5. When God says, I call you, walk by the spirit. Uh, and And he talks about what it means to walk by the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. How many of those things sounded like belligerent, angry type things? Not many. They're all peaceable, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. So to be meek is to be self-controlled or spirit-controlled. And you know, especially these days, that's very countercultural. Because it's kind of like we're being taught directly and indirectly that The louder you are, the more obnoxious you are, the more attention you can get for yourself, then people will finally do what you want them to do. And that's not at all what Jesus says his kingdom is like. He says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And those who know him are called to walk in this way. Realize that sometimes your strength is not always visible. So kingdom character, we are called to be meek. And then we shall inherit the earth. The next one, number four, 
comes from Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. Um, again, connection with Psalm 37, verse 4. says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, I put down, be hungry. This is interesting. When we had, when we talked about the temptation of Christ a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the questions I asked you, and I think that passage asked you, is for what do you hunger? Remember when the devil tempted Jesus to turn the stones into bread? And Jesus said, I can't do that because I'm on a mission right now of prayer and fasting. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. In fact, in John 4, Jesus says, my food and my drink is to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm more hungry to do God's will than I am to do anything else. So when we think about this idea of, of hunger, I'm going to put food on the screen in front of you here, okay? I know that's dangerous on a Sunday morning <laughs> as we're all, our stomachs are starting to rumble. But what is it that you're hungry for? I love it when God uses this analogy in Scripture because it's something every single human can identify with, that everyone has a passion, everyone has a, a desire to eat. And Jesus says, your greatest passion in life your greatest hunger, your greatest thirst should be for righteousness. And if it is, he promises that you will be filled. Kingdom character. You know, throughout Scripture, there's all these verses that kind of point to this. Another one from Psalm 63, it says, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I don't know about you all, but a lot of times when I think about how hungry am I for righteousness, how hungry am I for the ways of God and the word of God, it doesn't really fit that verse. Like I'm so thirsty, like in a dry and thirsty land that I would just be scrambling after that water. It doesn't necessarily describe the way that I seek or that I hunger for righteousness. And so I've always been fascinated by this. How do you become more hungry? If God says, be hungry for this, hunger and thirst after this, and then you will be filled. How do you grow that hunger? How can God grow that hunger in my life? Well, again, God gave us this analogy, and it's a physical analogy of just being physically hungry. So how do you become hungry physically? A couple of different ways, right? I know one for me is, especially this time of year when the weather's nice, you can be outside in the fresh air. Fresh air always makes me have a bigger appetite, okay? Uh, so that's actually something I think that translates directly into the spiritual realm. Get out in the fresh air and it makes you more spiritually hungry. In other words, if your only spiritual thing is to sit here in church, soak in the Bible, go to this Bible study, that Bible study, and you're just soaking it in, that's what I would say is kind of staying inside. God says, if you're my follower, go outside do some of my work, be around some people, maybe some unrighteous people, and you'll begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you can share it with them. Because true righteousness, doing the will of God, that standard of what God says is right, is only possible if God saves you and gives you a new heart. So how do you increase that hunger? Like I said, get outside, get some fresh air. Do some ministry, in other words. Uh, be around people who need to hear the gospel. Be around people who need to hear God's word. And I guarantee you, you'll get more hungry uh, as you try to share that with them. 
fresh air. Another thing that makes me hungry is, like I said, is, is this idea of working out, right? When you actually get out there and work out, you do a workout early in the morning. Usually if I don't eat a snack by the time lunch gets there, I'll eat everything in sight, everything in the fridge, okay? So when you work out, you get hungry. And so I would say the same thing there. It's kind of like that idea of getting out of the building, uh, Get out there and do some ministry, whether you're volunteering something here at the church through one of our mission partners. Those are the kind of things that increase your spiritual hunger because you need to feed yourself before you can pour yourself out to someone else. You can't share what you don't have. And so this idea of increasing the hunger, I think God calls us to have a constant and strong desire for righteousness. Next beatitude, Matthew 5 verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So the calling here is pretty obvious. Be merciful. We are called to be merciful. Well, what is mercy? This is a word that gets thrown around in Scripture a lot. Mercy basically means this. It means withholding punishment even when punishment is deserved. Okay? Uh, and so you can do this as a parent. You can do this as a spouse, right? Well, my my wife said this, and I just, she, I, I got I to gotta argue back at her or something like that. Mercy is withholding whatever might be deserved. Because you want to reflect the character of God. This goes all the way back to the description of God in the Old Testament. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We are called to be merciful. So the question this morning is, to whom in your life right now do you need to show mercy? Because the mercy that God has showed you... The mercy that he's given you if you're his follower leads you to extend that same mercy to people who don't deserve it as well. Mercy and grace, it says. We are called to be merciful. It's interesting, in the Beatitudes, that one falls right in the middle of them all. That one that says, be merciful. Matthew 5, verse 8, the next one is number 6, be pure. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This idea of pure in mind, pure in heart, is having a singleness of one mind. We see an example of this with Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. It says this, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so when Jesus says, be pure in heart, be blameless in your heart, this is what he's calling us to, is right conduct. But even more than that, it's your focus. Being pure in heart is only possible if you've had a change of heart a new heart that God's given you through Jesus Christ. So pure versus impure. If you think about this, I saw an example of this when we were on vacation over Christmas break. We got uh, about four inches of snow out at the family farm in Kansas. And when you have that brand new fresh snow, it is, it is just pure. Uh, you've heard the, the expression, uh, pure as the windblown snow. It's because it looks completely pure, white, untarnished. But after about a day when it starts melting and the mud starts coming through, that's the contrast. God says, I've made it possible for you to be pure. I've forgiven you. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. We are called to be pure. Job has something to say about this. He says this in Job 19 verses 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
we will be able to stand in his presence because we've been made pure by our King, Jesus Christ. So this begins at conversion, and it continues one decision and one step at a time. Matthew 5, verse 9, next one says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We're called to be peacemakers. Be peacemakers. Realize this begins with what Christ did for us. When Jesus came, our King came, he came to make peace between us and God. We were broken. We were poor in spirit, separate from God. Jesus came and gave us forgiveness. He made peace with God. Second Corinthians 5, 19. Christ was reckoning, God, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has given us the message and the means to be peacemakers. Peace with God and peace with other people. And it says, for they shall be called the sons of God. I love this picture. A dad and his son. The son's trying to do what the dad's doing. What this verse tells us, this beatitude tells us, is that we rarely ever look more like our Heavenly Father than when we are making peace and helping with reconciliation. Because that's what Jesus came to do, was to bring reconciliation. And that's why we're called to do it. We are called to reconcile people to God and reconcile people to others. A couple words of application on this. One would be this. Uh, clearly, we're called to not be peacetakers, right? When there's peace in a room and you come in and you create chaos and turmoil, that's not what this is calling us to do. So don't start that kind of thing. But here's something else that's almost as dangerous, and that would be what's called a peace faker, okay? We're not called to be peace fakers. We're called to be peacemakers. So pretending like everything's okay, sweeping it under the rug doesn't actually solve it. God says, I want you to make peace between yourself and me, between others and me, and between other people. Reconciliation is the work of the Messiah, and we rarely look more like him than when we are making peace. Two more Beatitudes. Matthew 5 verse 10 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is calling us here to do is to be devoted. Be devoted. Opposition is going to come. In some countries and areas of the world, it's blatant. Uh, you'll actually be killed if you uh, believe in Jesus or if you proclaim Jesus. It can be more subtle than that. You can be criticized by friends or family or um, local people. Either way, don't give up. Jesus says, be devoted. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Remember the eternal reward that you have. So be prepared for any opposition you might have. You know, the example of this is Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. He faced persecution, he faced death, and yet he stayed devoted and committed to the very end. Lastly, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we are called to be joyful. Be joyful. You know, no matter what you face, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, if your king is Jesus and he's saved you from your sins, you can experience joy. You can endure anything. Here's that quote again. 
The idea of being blessed or being joyful is an exclamation of the inner joy and peace that comes from being right with God. If you're right with God, you have a perspective. You know you're going to receive a reward someday. You know you will be in the kingdom of heaven. We can be joyful through all things. So we come to the end of the Beatitudes, and you look at that list. You might look at that list today, and you've got it there in your bulletin if you filled out all the blanks. And you might say, oh, my goodness, how am I possibly going to do this? In fact, later in Matthew, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you look at this list, and you say, Jesus, you're the one who's making me heavy laden. How can I possibly do this? And the answer is, there's a couple things here. Number one, you actually can't do it. On your own. Remember, you're poor in spirit. This is hopeless apart from God's help. You can't be any of these things fully without God's help. So depend on him. Through the spirit you can. Then the second thing is this. Remember that picture of fruit. God says if Jesus lives in your heart, he's going to produce the kind of fruit that's described here in Matthew 5. These are the kingdom character qualities that he wants to produce in you and he wants you to demonstrate. That's the way he designed it. This is the way of life. It might look like a list of things you have to do, but Jesus says these are actually the things that give you freedom. And it's who you really are. This is your character now if you're my child. This is the way of life. This is the fruitful life. And so this morning, as we look at these Beatitudes, I would just encourage you, go and bear fruit. Blessed are you if you hear these things and do them. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who makes this way of the kingdom, these kingdom qualities possible, Lord. I pray that we would just uh, rely on you, cooperate with you, Lord, as you transform us as individuals and as a church. God, I pray that we would be faithful in all these things to you. God, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.